Hello, uh, my name is John Worrell. Uh, I'm Professor of Philosophy here at LSE, and it's my pleasure to welcome you all to this uh, Karl Popper Memorial Lecture. Uh, Popper was certainly one of the most significant thinkers to, uh, to teach at the LSE. Many people would argue the most significant. And we try and keep his name alive in the, in the department that he founded, our Department of Philosophy, Logic, and Scientific Method, in various ways. Uh, we have a very fine bust of Popper that was kindly donated by the Austrian government some years ago after his death. Uh, we have a student prize every two years that's called the Popper Prize for the best piece of work by a graduate student in our department on a topic to which Sir Carl contributed. We still call our main seminar, main departmental seminar, the Popper Seminar, and it still meets on Tuesdays from 2 to 4, just as it did when Popper was the lead. But the most important way we do is, uh, is to run this lecture series, uh, the Popper Memorial Lecture Series. Uh, it's made possible by a memorial fund that was set up when Popper died in 1994. Uh, but I should also say that as well as the fund contributing to it, we're very grateful to the Austrian Cultural Forum, uh, represented by Peter Mikkel here tonight, uh, for their generous help with the funding, and we're hoping that that will be a a continuing arrangement between the Memorial Fund and the Austrian Cultural uh, Forum. The, uh, one of the uh, Im important things about Popper is that he wasn't just significant within the Academy, uh, but very much outside it, outside it as well, in terms of his impact on society and on political thought right across the, the world, in many parts of the world, and that's the, the, what we're going to hear about today from Abdul Karim Sarouj, who I'm very pleased to welcome. He, as many of you will know, is a leading Iranian intellectual, centrally involved in reformist Islamic thought. He studied philosophy of science many years ago, about the same time that I was first studying philosophy of science. We worked out that although we didn't know each other, we must have been in the same seminar room, some seminar rooms many times. He, he studied at Chelsea College, which then used to have a thriving philosophy of science program headed by Heinz Post, and there was a good deal of interaction between, uh, between Post's seminar and Popper's seminar. So that's when I think uh, uh, Abdul Karim be became interest interested in Popper's thought. Uh, uh, since leaving the University of Tehran, he's had visiting positions at a range of American universities, including Harvard, Princeton, Yale, and others. Uh, he's just recently back from the University of Chicago, though his main visiting position at present is at, the, is at College Park, University of Maryland. As well as a philosopher and reformer, he's an acknowledged world expert on Rumi and Persian Sufi poetry, but he won't talk about Rumi today. He'll talk about Popper, and he, he'll talk about Popper under the title that you see behind you, Critical Rationalism and Religious Reform <laughs> and Political Reform in Iran. So please, uh, thank you. could you thank please you. welcome him? Thank you, uh, Professor uh, Warrell, and uh, good afternoon to uh, all of you. And uh, thanks uh, the esteemed scholars, the dear students, and distinguished guests here. Well, as Professor Warrell alluded to, I was not perhaps a student of Papa himself, but I did study Papa when I was a student of uh, 
philosophy of science back 35 years ago, and that was in Chelsea College, which later on merged into King's College, as I suppose everybody here knows. And uh, I should uh, declare my regret that Professor Heinz Post is not among us. He died at 2004, and he was my uh, professor and a good friend of uh, Papa. So there was a lot of communication between the two uh, uh, faculties, and uh, so not only I studied in, in Chelsea College, but also I used to come to LSE. So I find myself in my second home now in uh, uh, LSE, although this theater is new, but the house is, is old enough to, to tell me a lot about my uh, you know, previous uh, experiences and good old days, of course. And now uh, let me go directly into the topic of my talk here and uh, give you some background information, you know, uh, initially about the uh, situation of philosophy in Iran, in Iran universities, and then, of course, the position and the place of Popper among the uh, philosophical education in, in Iran. I take it that uh, everybody here knows Iran through uh, political channels, but maybe uh, philosophy is not that well known. Therefore, one has to know something about the background of uh, philosophical education in Iran. And then in order to be able to situate Popper in, in uh, post-revolutionary uh, philosophy in Iran. Let me tell you that uh, you can, you know, have uh, you can have an estimate of uh, the uh, state of modern uh, British philosophy, especially or rather Anglo-Saxon philosophy in Iran, uh, by knowing that only one of the books of Popper, that is the Poverty of Historicism, was translated into Persian before the Islamic Revolution, i.e., 33 years ago. That was the amount of the familiarity of the public as well as the educated with Popper's philosophy, and for that matter, with Anglo-Saxon philosophy. Um, in Iran, mainly in, in all philosophical departments of philosophy, you would uh, you know, encounter philosophers who either knew uh, Islamic philosophy, which I will come to that later on, or perhaps modern Western philosophy. But by Western philosophy, mainly I mean continental philosophy. British or empiricist or empirical philosophy did not have a, a high place in uh, philosophical education in Iran. Yes, they did teach Hume. They did sometimes teach, for example, Bertrand Russell. But they were very marginal. Mainly uh, continental philosophers like Hegel, like Heidegger, like Nietzsche, and of course Greek philosophy, Plato and uh, Aristotle and so on. They were the main subjects of uh, philosophical education in Tehran University, the mother university, and of course other universities all over the, uh, the country. So the familiarity of the people with modern British philosophy, especially philosophy of science, was, I mean, next to nothing. I quite remember that I did chemistry when I was in Iran, but when I left Iran to England, I was looking for philosophy. At that time, 
I didn't know that there existed such a thing as philosophy of science, nor anybody else in Iran did know anything about philosophy of science. I had not heard the topic, and it was only by chance, by accident, that I discovered that there existed such a thing as philosophy of science. I wanted to continue my studies with uh, psychology or something, but somebody actually um, you know, guided me, I would say, to philosophy of science and told me that what you are looking for, you can find it in philosophy of science rather than in psychology. And that was how I discovered such a new subject. And then, after my return to Iran, I introduced it to the, to the public and to the uh, academia. So, uh, philosophy of science did not have any place, nor anybody knew about it. No book, as far as I remember, had been translated into Persian on philosophy of science. It was absolutely an unknown you know, branch of, uh, of philosophy. So, uh, and of course, together with the modern continental uh, philosophy, um, most of our students did learn uh, Islamic philosophy. In brackets, I should perhaps mention that Islamic philosophy is a misnomer and it is one of the orientalistic fabrications, I would say. We do not like it. I don't think that any of Muslim philosophers are, has ever called his philosophy Islamic philosophy. And uh, this is something that by way of categorizations, you find it in Western literature, but that was not the case with Muslim philosophers. Islamic philosophy is peripatetic philosophy, is Greek philosophy. Of course, it has been augmented, it has been reinforced, and uh, there has been some new questions put to peripatetic philosophy, and some answers you know, to those questions. But the main structure of the philosophy is the same as the Greek, and especially Aristotelian philosophy rather than Platonic ones. Therefore, when I say that uh, Iranian students did you know, learn peripatetic or rather Islamic philosophy, I mainly mean uh, Greek philosophy and especially Aristotelian philosophy, which had been made somehow compatible with Islamic teachings because, after all, Muslim philosophers were producers of uh, such uh, philosophy. Together with this, you have, uh, of course, Islamic mysticism or uh, mystical philosophy, if you like, or theoretical mysticism. That was, again, part of the uh, philosophical education in all departments of philosophy in Iran. Now, um, if I may, you know, uh, I would like to say what are the main characteristics of these, you know, different branches of theoretical uh, 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 learnings. Uh, one of them is, first of all, essentialism, which is very important. Nominalism actually has no place in Islamic philosophy, nor in Aristotelian philosophy, as you know. And uh, although there has been some discussions of medieval philosophers who did opt for nominalism, but nevertheless, nominalism was an obscure, you know, uh, subject. Nobody followed it, and nobody liked it. And so essentialism uh, was the order of the day. This I mention in order to say, you know, by the introduction of modern philosophy of science and Popperian philosophy, uh, nominalism, you know, was introduced, which makes, you know, a, a very sharp contrast, actually, with, uh, with the essentialism of, uh, uh, of uh, Islamic philosophy and, of course, uh, continental uh, philosophy. <coughs> 
the uh, the other characteristic of uh, you know uh, let us say classical philosophy and Islamic philosophy was of course pursuing certainty there is no place for epistemology at all in classical Islamic or let us say Aristotelian philosophy there is no place for uh, you know discussing errors where errors come from and how are we to deal with it what is the difference between the systematic error and the random error? Nothing of that kind you can find it in classical philosophy. Again, it makes a very sharp contrast with what you learn it in modern, you know, uh, empiricist philosophy and, of course, in, in Popperian philosophy. So, uh, against this, you know, backdrop, you can now uh, think. Uh, what would happen when a new philosophy with certain very different characteristics and features made its way into the, uh, you know, the already existing philosophical atmosphere in, in Iran? Needless to say that empirical philosophy, of course, was uh, you know, not uh, in favor because there were Muslim philosophers who did not like empiricism and they thought that perhaps empiricism was somehow equivalent to materialism because you know uh, mainly uh, you know basing yourself on uh, naturalistic uh, you know uh, philosophizing maybe is not a good metaphysics for uh, for for having faith in you know supernatural uh, beings and so on so such is the background of philosophy therefore as i said when popper was translated through his poverty of historicism, nobody actually took notice of it. Nobody paid attention to it, not only because of the popper and his philosophy, but because, of course, I must say, because of the virtually incomprehensible translation of the book. It is still incomprehensible. When I, you know, after the revolution, when I, you know, uh, did uh, philosophy of history, only once I recommended my students to read this book, but then I left it because I thought that perhaps it was really, really, uh, you know, I was wrong, I was doing wrong to my students. And uh, it was, you know, uh, something, you know, too much for them to understand it. So I thought that perhaps the English version would, you know, work much better than the Persian version. Although the translator, the interpreter was one of the very well-known translators in Iran, but because of the, you know, the, the, the unfamiliarity of, of the subject, you know, they did not get it very well, and he could not convey the message into, uh, to the public. That was uh, as far as the pre-revolutionary era is concerned. But now there is a sea difference, I would say, uh, after the revolution. The revolution, I mean, Islamic revolution of Iran has got its own positive and negative sides, which I'm not going to deal with that at all here. And I take it that some of you are, uh, you know, know something about it. But one of the good things which happened after the Islamic revolution was the flourishing of philosophy. You know, Iranians are very philosophically minded, I mean, mind you. And, uh, I mean, uh, well, in contrast to perhaps the Westerners who are very musically minded. So we are very poetically minded, we are very philosophically minded, and this is not because of, you know, um, self-serving, you know, comment, but this is how history shows. You know, departments of philosophy are always full. I mean, lectures on philosophy is always like this. I mean, students, non-students rush 
to theaters in order to uh, to listen to uh, philosophical lectures. And uh, Persian poetry is full of philosophy. We call it poetry, but it is philosophy, you know, in the garb of poetry. So if you want to, to meet a, a real thinker, you have to meet him, you know, meet a, a, a philosopher, a, a poet. Professor Worrell said that uh, Suruj is not going to discuss Rumi here. Of course I am not. But uh, what I would like to say is that Rumi is a philosopher. He did not like philosophy, you know, because he didn't like peripatetic philosophy. But certainly, certainly he was a serious thinker. And, uh, you know, his poetry needs interpretations. And it has received many interpretations by philosophers, by mystics, and uh, many others. So after the revolution, uh, I mean, philosophy received a lot of attention on the part of, uh, of students and uh, the educated public. And, uh, you know, not only philosophy, but also theology. Uh, this was uh, not only because of the, let us say, natural proclivity of Iranians, but also because of the leader of the revolution. Aital Khomeini himself was a philosopher. He liked philosophy. He liked theoretical mysticism. And because of that, actually, he lifted the ban on philosophy, the unofficial ban on philosophy. There was an unofficial ban on the part of the clerical establishment on philosophy. Even in the seminary of Qom, people who dared, you know, study philosophy were very, you know, few. They could not because there was a you know, a fear of allegation of apostasy and so on and so forth. And Ayatollah Khomeini had the same experience and he mentioned it in one of his public sermons that because of philosophy he was, uh, you know, accused of being an apostate. And because of that, you know, after the revolution, not only the secular universities, but also the seminaries, the religious seminaries, they opened the gate to philosophy and there were a lot of, you know, uh, students, seminary students, and uh, secular students doing philosophy, Western philosophy, Islamic philosophy, and so on and so forth. Even I do remember that before the revolution, the seminarians who uh, did study a foreign language were very, very few indeed. But after the revolution, you know, the number increased, and uh, you found, you know, so many of uh, seminarian students, theological students, who did learn uh, one or two foreign languages and translated, you know, some of the philosophical stuff into Persian, which is now is, is a common business, and you find it uh, everywhere. Now, uh, philosophy, actually, after the revolution, so uh, became you know, very fortunate after having a misfortune long before the revolution. Now, this uh, fortune actually visited Popper as well. So Popper became much more fortunate after the revolution. Most of his books actually were translated into Persian. Um, the first one to receive a lot of, you know, good reception was, of course, the open society and its enemies. Uh, three simultaneous, you know, translations of the same book appeared at the same time. And it tells you a lot about the popularity of Popper among Iranians, you know. And one of them, of course, was the best, and it is still being republished and reread and rediscussed by, you know, Iranian public. But then, of course, I mean, the floodgate was open, you know. So many other books by Popper got translated. Uh, the, uh, the logic of 
scientific discovery translated under my supervision by one of my students. And that was the only technical book by Popper. And of course, the conjectures and refutations, um, objective knowledge, and many other major books by Popper were all translated into Persian by good translators. It might be, uh, I mean, come as a surprise to you to tell you that President Khatami, you know, whom I take it and everybody knows here, he was eight years, you know, a president of Iran for eight years. He recommended to the ministers of his cabinet to read Popper. You know, this is very important. The book uh, by Popper, the, uh, the Lessons of This Century, translated into Persian, he recommended every one of the members of the cabinet to, uh, to, to have the book and to read them in order to know what are the you know, situation of this century and to be good ministers. You know. So this, such is the popularity of Popper, was the popularity of Popper, Popper in Iran. And uh, uh, needless to say that uh, his, uh, you know, philosophy of science actually became, uh, you know, a major subject in uh, all universities all over the, uh, the, the country. I should say that uh, I played a small role in this uh, because of my familiarity with philosophy of science and because of philosophy being my main subject and because of the, you know, historical chance that I became a member of the uh, cultural revolution, the famous or the infamous cultural revolution in Iran. So I had the power, the privilege, to introduce philosophy of science into all Iran academia. And uh, it became you know, a very serious subject. And uh, now we have got you know, a very flourishing two or three you know, uh, uh, faculties, uh, you know, one in Sharif University and other places, and a number of professors coming from America and, and England who have, uh, you know, had, uh, uh, you know, received their PhDs and now they are professors of philosophy of science, and it has got, you know, a sure foot even in the seminary of Qom and other places. Now seminarians also are getting familiar with philosophy of science, and now they are discovering that there are such things. What, uh, you know, irritates me that in Iran, sometimes they call it falsafe muzaf, which means a philosophy which is added to another subject, which I don't like it. Philosophy of science means a ph philosophical study of science. It doesn't mean that philosophy has been added to science. This is not philosophy and science. This is philosophy of science. But because of some misunderstanding, sometimes they have, uh, you know, uh, they use some, uh, you know, not very appropriate term for philosophy of science, but not only philosophy of science, but philosophy of religion, philosophy of ethics, philosophy of technology, and many other subjects like these, which we better call them second-order disciplines, second-order, you know, uh, uh, branches of philosophy are now everywhere. And uh, you can find them, uh, that there are so many students doing them and having communication with, you know, uh, other scholars on uh, other subjects uh, and branches of, uh, of philosophy. Now, um, this is by way of background and how philosophy of science was introduced and how Popper received such, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, big amount of, uh, of attention in Iran. 
Let me, I mean, go to uh, the, um, the impact of Pope on uh, religious reform and, of course, on, uh, on politics. <coughs> now, um, let me uh, just, I mean, begin with some of Popper statements, Popper remarks, that has become, I would say, somehow proverbial in Persian literature, in Iranian literature, Iranian politics, and it tells you a lot about the amount of the immense amount of impact that Popper has had on politics in Iran as well as on humanities and social sciences. Um, usually, uh, I mean, um, in some books and certainly in the open society, the end notes are uh, much richer than the text of the book. And most of what I'm going to tell you now are from the end notes, from the footnotes, if you like, rather than the body of the, of the text. And all of these are taken from there. And as I said, they have become somehow proverbial. They are everywhere. You, you, you hear them. You find them. And they have become catch words or catch remarks for, for the people who are discussing. Some of them, some of the people who use this even do not know who or where is the source. But nevertheless, I mean, it is prevailing. And uh, you find it everywhere. One of the remarks by Popper is his let us say negative utilitarianism which means uh, rather than increasing the happiness of people I mean which you have it as a principle in utilitarian let us reduce the suffering of people this should be the end or the goal of politics this has been picked up by one of our you know very well known uh, intellectuals in Iran and this is almost his motto that uh, two things is the main function or the main obligation, if you like, of the public intellectual. First, to reduce the suffering of the people, and second, to increase you know, their uh, knowledge uh, of, uh, of truth. And I think the second bit also comes from uh, Popper, no doubt, because his philosophy was, after all, very similitude, you know, approaching the truth, although he was not successful in formulating it or giving it a formal, you know, uh, systematization, but nevertheless, I mean, the main idea is still there. To more, know more and to suffer less. So this, you might say, is a, a political motto of Popper, and uh, this has been picked up very carefully, very cleverly by some public intellectuals and has been, you know, propagated. The second is, of course, his distinction between how and who in politics. You remember that one of the uh, main topics in the open society is so far the main question of all politics since Plato has been who should rule. But according to him, the main question is not who, but how to rule. And this how to rule, of course, brings you to democracy and to the role of people, to elections, and so. But who should rule, of course, according to Papa, is something which, you know, misdirects the question and gives you the miss, I mean, the wrong answer. I mean, either the, uh, perhaps the working class should be the ruler, or maybe the king philosopher should be the ruler, 
or in the present case, in the current situation in Iran, perhaps the Wali Faqih, the grand jurist, should be the ruler. And according to power, uh, to power, none of these are the right answers to the wrong question. So the right question is uh, how we should rule. And then, of course, there you find the role of the people and uh, other things. I remember that even before the revolution, one of the major theologians of Iran, Iranians no doubt know him, Mutahari, um, who was, uh, uh, you know, one of the closest disciples and students of Ayatollah Khomeini, the leader of the revolution, he actually <coughs> mentions this particular point in one of his writings. I am not sure about his source and how he got it, but uh, I found it in, in his writings, and uh, he gives it in a, a lot of, you know, uh, praise that uh, some philosophers have said that uh, we are not going to look for the person or the persons who should rule the society, but rather the, you know, asking how is much more important than asking who. This is, of course, again, the motto of the reformists who always are looking for a theoretical foundation for the opposition against the, uh, you know, the, the who rule, the Platonic, if you like, uh, principle of uh, philosopher king. Now, the, the third, which is uh, much more, you know, popular nowadays, is most of the people who wanted to erect a paradise on the earth, they ended up in a hell. So this is again in, in the footnotes or the end notes of Popper. And uh, so this is, this is everywhere. I mean, this is not a proverb. This is almost a verse now. And like a verse of Quran, a verse of the Bible, everybody quotes it. Everybody, you know, quotes it. That trying to build, to erect a paradise on the earth will no doubt lead you to, to another hell. So let us be content. Let us be modest. Let us not promise too much. Again, I mean, uh, as a corollary to this particular statement, Papa says that there are, I mean, those people who promise too much, either in politics or in medicine. They are charlatans. So this is a corollary to the previous remark. So uh, we should not promise a lot. We should not promise too much. We should not promise people that we are going to bring or to, uh, you know, uh, to build you know, uh, a paradise on, on the earth. We should be very you know, modest. And that's where, as you know, of course, and this is again in his uh, open society and his enemies, we have to uh, opt for piecemeal social engineering, as it is as everybody knows about it. So, uh, by the way, uh, I mean, the first prime minister after the revolution was Mr. Bazargan, who exactly used the phrase piecemeal engineering. So this, I am not again sure that he got it from uh, Popper or elsewhere, but uh, knowingly, anonymously or knowingly, he was, uh, you know, a, a follower of Popper in that particular respect. Now, uh, another remark by Papa is uh, when it is raining, this is very important, and this is more philosophical, and I personally have used it against my adversaries, against people who, you know, had, you know, some other directions in philosophy. 
And, uh, you know, this is a very, very wise remark on the part of Popper, that when it is raining, we take umbrellas. Very, very important, as simple as that, but very important. When it is um, raining, we take umbrellas. It means that we should not, you know, in order to make a small change, we should not change the whole world. You might say that, okay, if it is raining and I do not like raining, therefore I have to change, you know, the whole laws of physics in order not for the, in order not for the sun to shine, in order not for the water to be evaporated, in order for the clouds not to, you know, to come together and to rain. Just, I mean, do not think like that. It's a fancy. Just have an umbrella. That will solve your problem. You need not change the system of the world. This is very important, especially when it comes to politics. Especially when it comes to politics. Because politicians, you know, from the start, they think they are there, especially revolutionaries, especially revolutionaries. They think that they are there in order to change the whole world. In order, they are there in order to change the laws of nature, the laws of society, the laws of history, or whatever. No, 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 you should be both more modest and most, more wise. You know, you can reach your end, your goal, you know, in a much, uh, you know, uh, more clever way, rather than, you know, to, to start doing something which is impossible. Remember from Marx that, uh, you know, politics is the science of the possible. So, I mean, looking for the impossible and going for the impossible and promising too much, and instead of taking or lifting an umbrella, you know, trying to change the whole heavens, is, is, uh, is lunacy, is, uh, is uh, trying to do the, the, the impossible. Now, uh, <coughs> the other remark by Popper again, which uh, became very well known, and uh, that is, uh, it is not uh, uh, the definition or the criterion, if you like, of democracy to choose a ruler, but rather it is a criterion of a democracy to topple the ruler, to be able to depose him by democratic ways. So this, of course, stems very directly from his uh, refutability principle, that wherever you can refute something or, you know, to, to, to change it or to topple it or to depose it or to falsify it or whatever, there is uh, either the, 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 the sign of scientificness, if you like, and of course in politics it is a, a, a good token for, uh, for democracy. Now, uh, I mean, uh, so much for the, uh, for the uh, you know, uh, statements and remarks by Popper, which uh, have become, I mean, prevailing almost everywhere. Uh, among the educated and non-educated in Iran, which tells you, you know, very vividly, very lucidly about the extent of the impact of Popper on politics, on the general public, and of course uh, on uh, uh, political reformers in, in Iran. You know, in political reform, you need a theory, and in order to have a theory, of course, I mean, you have to have something about democracy, you have to know something about human beings, about society, about, you know, modesty in politics, modesty in science, modesty in thinking, in promising, and all that. And I think all these remarks which I mentioned here, uh, and uh, uh, points which maybe invite some of you who have not yet read this uh, you know, important book, the, you know, the Open Society, 
So this might, you know, uh, give you a good clue as to the richness of the book and perhaps uh, uh, tells you a lot about the, the content of the, uh, of the book. Now, uh, I think I have, you know, done enough about the impact of Popper on politics and you see, of course, why Popper fell into disfavor on the part of the politicians on the part of the uh, official establishment after a while. I would say that Popper was there for about maybe 10 years, but then after that, virtually, you know, uh, he was, Popper was the only philosopher whose name actually emerged, appeared on the lips of the supreme leader in Iran. You know, supreme leader, he's not a philosopher, he's not certainly familiar with modern Western philosophy. Why? Because of the influence of Popper, he recommended and he warned, you know, Iranian students not to study Popper. He didn't mention the reason, but what he said was that he is not after all a serious philosopher, therefore you should not waste your time studying Popper. So this tells you again the story of Popper and the amount of the impact and the fear of the, of the uh, establishment of Popper, because Popper is for democracy, is uh, somebody who, you know, is, uh, if you like, a political li liberal, and his liberalism, of course, is not something to be liked by uh, revolutionaries, especially the people who are, uh, you know, have established a, a, a kind of rule which is um, somehow platonic, if you like, and uh, therefore, of course, Popper's teachings uh, uh, do not match with uh, what they have in mind. So political liberalism of Popper, based on his philosophy, together with his uh, philosophy of Popper, all came under suspicion. And uh, the establishment got very suspicious, very doubtful about him and his influence, and so they tried to remove him and to eradicate him by and by, gradually, from the public scene. It is now confined to the educator, to the university students, although, I mean, his books are being translated, you know, uh, and one of the uh, translators, Mr. Paya, is here, who has done a lot about Popper, teaching him, translating him, and, uh, of course, uh, many others who still admire him and find, you know, some very rich and relevant points in, in his writings. Now, what about, uh, you know, his role in uh, religious uh, um, reform? Here, actually, we have got the most uh, sensitive part of, uh, of Popper's influence in, in Iran. Um, in my preamble, in the introduction, I just mentioned to you that the, uh, the dominant philosophy in Iran, i.e. Islamic philosophy, and of course the continental philosophy, they are uh, mainly essentialist, and of course looking for certainty, which is very important, very, very important. Um, do not actually look at yourself, who are familiar with the theory of error, with the skepticism, with conjectures, with fallibility, and many other things. You know, for, uh, you know, uh, people with some dogmatic 
you know, understanding of religion. Certainty is, of course, the most important principle, the most important goal. Introducing the idea of skepticism, of fallibism, of uncertainty, of probability, of fallibility of human beings, fallibility of knowledge, and, uh, you know, the idea of epistemology, which is mainly based on human, you know, error, is something, you know, which, of course, you know, faces some uh, resistance, you know. It is not a welcome, you know, idea to, uh, to teach people that, uh, rather than certainty, rather than dogmatic faith, they have to prepare themselves to be more modest, to look at all their ideas and beliefs and faith like conjectures, like suppositions, something which uh, can be, you know, corrected later on, something that may be changed, something that may be abandoned in the, in the future. None of these are, you know, tolerable ideas. None of these are something, a good food for somebody who so far had a dogmatic mind. Therefore, introducing such ideas, of course, encounters, you know, uh, very, uh, you know, uh, hard resistance. And that was what actually happened. I personally wrote a book called The uh, Contraction and Expansion of Religious Knowledge some 20 years ago. Now, this, proof, this book proved to be very controversial. You know, some 13 books, I mean, apart from numerous articles, 13 books were read, uh, written, you know, uh, in rebutting, you know, the argument of the book and in, you know, uh, refuting the arguments, if you like, and showing that the religious knowledge is neither uh, under expansion nor contraction. It is always the same and constant and fixed and, you know. So I received a number of criticism, mainly based on the same idea, that this is relativism, this is a skepticism. This is something which has got nothing to do with the heart of belief, to the essence of faith. And therefore, introducing the idea of fallibilism in faith, of course, is something which is totally alien to the mindset of the traditional, you know, uh, believers. Here, actually, um, uh, I would say, according to the, uh, to the uh, establishment, Popper made a disservice to the faith, to the revolution. Remember that, after all, Papa is considered as somebody who is anti-revolutionary. He didn't like revolution. Of course, I mean, there have been many other philosophers who did not like revolution. He didn't like revolution because he thought that uh, we have to make piecemeal engineering, social engineering. We have to, you know, uh, we have to try things that we can correct them. We can you know, uh, uh, modify them if they uh, go wrong. But revolution such a big thing that even if you make uh, a mistake, you cannot make it good, you cannot go back, you cannot change it. You have already made the big mistake, you have to continue it. And according to this, he, he is an anti-revolutionary. In a revolutionary space and atmosphere, a revolution based on a dogmatic, you know, understanding of religion, of course Popper did not have a good place and did not received well by especially the, uh, the traditionalists. From here, actually, uh, you know, he faced 
you know, and he encountered a setback, if you like. And uh, so his, uh, after being perhaps a public figure for some time, his books like The Open Society and, you know, uh, maybe Poverty of Historicism and so on, being read and received well everywhere. Now the, uh, you know, the fate of Popper is that he's now confined to the academia. He's being studied along with uh, other philosophers uh, and he's, uh, uh, I mean, receiving his, his, his due share. One thing towards the end of my talk I would uh, like to mention and then finish my uh, lecture and that is a false opposition between, I mean, Popperians and Heideggerians in, in Iran. I uh, should mention this uh, in order just to diffuse it and to say that it was a bogus opposition, a bogus debate, if you like, something which had no basis, no foundations. And it just, you know, made a fuss and now it is dormant. You know, um, early years of the, in the early years after the revolution, you know, some of the, you know, professors of philosophy who were mainly followers of Heidegger, they sensed that uh, Popper was not a philosopher who was in favor of Heidegger, in favor of, uh, um, of continental philosophy. Indeed, actually, Popper has uh, written not against Heidegger, but a lot against Hegel, you know, as you know. And he brings in some of the uh, you know, remarks by Hegel, which are really, really surprising to see those things, for example, about electricity, about magnetism and so on by a philosopher like Hegel, so ludicrous that you cannot believe it, that they come from a serious philosopher. So anyway, Popper did not like him, and uh, so uh, he was not in favor, uh, uh, I mean, nor in favor of Plato. As you know, he was one of the main critics of Plato, and he thought that perhaps Plato was, uh, you know, after all, uh, a dictator and uh, a, a teacher of dictatorship and uh, totalitarianism and so on. Popper was anti-Marxist, no doubt about it, and his uh, whole book on the open society is an anti-Marxist, you know, uh, bit of literature, which uh, is very, uh, you know, apparent. So none of these actually... Uh, came, you know, as, uh, as a good food, if you like, for the uh, people who were either, you know, have some inclinations towards Marx or towards uh, Plato or continental philosophy. So there were a number of enemies, armies, if you like, coming from different corners of the society. Let me remind you that intellectualism in Iran, especially before revolution, meant Marxism. You know, it was perhaps the case everywhere in the world, maybe, but in Iran it was very nuanced and very prominent. Mm -hmm. And, you know, leftism and Marxism was, you know, the essence of intellectualism. And it was quite, quite, you know, expected that uh, intellectuals, especially with the leftist bent, did not like Popper because of his anti-Marxian, you know, position. People who were interested in continental philosophy, they did not like him.
because of his anti-Hegelian, anti-Platonic, you know, stand in, in philosophy. Muslim philosophers and theologians, because of their, you know, popper's stand, you know, like nominalism, liberalism, falibism, they also did not like him. So there were three different armies, you know, coming together, combating and fighting against uh, Popper because of different reasons. You know, for the first time, you know, after the revolution, the leftist, the left wing and the right wing, they were united. There was a coalition among them against Popper. Therefore, Popper had the power to unite such, you know, far apart, you know, political wings. You know, the right wing, the left wing, the believers, the non-believers, all came together in order to suppress Popper's philosophy. And they did succeed to some extent, you know, because everybody has his or her own interest, either suppressing nominalism or skepticism or suppressing, you know, anti-Marxism or suppressing, you know, continental philosophy. And uh, because of all this, actually, uh, uh, Popper, uh, there is, you, you know, of course, this is, uh, I mean, journalists uh, are willing and, uh, to, to explain this to you, that there is no such thing as bad publicity, you know. Popper received some bad publicity, but it was not a bad publicity, you know, because it made him a public figure after the revolution, and uh, I think he has been the most influential modern British philosopher in Iran, especially after the revolution. His books are now everywhere. He is being read very well, but because of the unofficial ban of the establishment on the ideas of Popper, people, people usually do not you know, mention his name, but they use his ideas. This brings me to the end of my talk. Thank you very much, and I am ready for your observation. Uh, thank you very much. Um, so now we have some time for questions. Uh, we'll just perhaps give people a minute or two to leave if they like to. Uh, we do have roving mics for those who would like to ask a question. Uh, we, we have half an hour or so. Could, could those people who do ask questions uh, wait to be called, and then when they are called, could they say who they are? Uh, and uh, Well, just who they are, I guess. Uh, and then uh, uh, Professor Saroush will answer as best he can. So are there, uh, middle there, to, to your left, yep. Uh, my name is Isa, and I'm a PhD student from Afghanistan. I'm studying uh, uh, political economy at the Soas University. And uh, although I'm not a philosopher, nor I have studied deep, uh, deeply into into philosophy, but I, I had a very personal interest in philosophy. So I liked the presentation and lecture of uh, Dr. Sarosh, and it was really a pleasure, and of course an honor to be here. Uh, in part of your lecture, you mentioned about the, about prevention of promises, uh, which is very attractive uh, in, in real life. But take it into politics. Uh, don't you think if we take that uh, argument into consideration, isn't it going to uh, 
uh, going to epitomize or generalize the ideology of pessimism? Why well, I don't uh, I don't see the, the the connection between the two. I mean, not uh, promise too much, which is a kind of uh, you know uh, deceiving the people has got nothing to do with pessimism. You know, you have to be modest and you have to you know guide your people. You know, people who are listening to you and who are trusting you. You should be very careful what you say and uh, what you promise them. So. It is, it is a moral principle, actually. So pessimism has no place here. I don't understand the connection between the two. In front here. My name, my name is Christopher de Blay. I'm a writer. Um, on the question of pessimism and promises, in a democracy, in order to come to power, you have to make promises. Those promises are invariably beyond your capacity. We see that now in the election in the United States. So does democracy now not lead inevitably to disappointment and to the delivering of false promises? Yes, of course. I mean, uh, you are blaming or perhaps criticizing democracy or blaming or criticizing Papa. Which one? I mean, I think on the immoral you know, uh, stand, I mean, Popper is absolutely right. I mean, we should not, you know, but if you see that, for example, in the United States, they are promising too much, so they are wrong, mm, not Popper, but sometimes, yes, I mean, uh, I mean, democracy is sometimes populism. You know, you have to satisfy, you know, you have to attract, you know, the, the populist people, you know, and that's why you promise too much, and it's exactly why Popper actually recommends politicians that uh, those who promise too much uh, either in medicine or in politics they are charlatans. So this tells us that if here in, in England or in, in the United States somebody is there who promises you too much, you should know that he's a charlatan and do not vote for him. So. <coughs> Next uh, gentleman just has a question. Abbas Azad, thank you very much. Um, the Popperian world you described sounded very much to me like a, a dystopia. Um, so I wanted to ask you, in a world of, uh, in the Popperian world, which is essentially passive and leads to a piecemeal uh, positivist politics of anti-politics, if you like, what's the point of waking up in the morning for a political philosopher? What is, your f what is the function of a political philosopher? Uh, the, the, the examples you described seem to me to lead into a function of risk management, which is why we have technocrats. So what is the function of political philosophy? Well, do you think that a political philosopher should be a revolutionary always? He well, was not a revolutionary, but he didn't think that revolution is part of political philosophy, or at least what has to be very careful when he recommends revolutions to people. So he was a piecemeal engineer, no doubt about it, and he thought this is the right way of doing politics. He didn't recommend, you know, uh, uh, revolutions because he thought maybe his argument is not sound but nevertheless I mean he has got some argument for this that he thought that revolutions harms are always more than their you know benefits their goods so therefore they thought that perhaps through social engineering we must you know uh, solve our problems in order not to you know fall in need of, of a revolution or revolutionary change so this is what uh, actually he he recommends. 
So you might say that revolutions sometimes become necessary. That is a different thing. So, uh, but he is a political philosopher because he criticizes philosophy. He has got some ideas about political philosophy. As I mentioned, for example, take umbrella, you know, when it is raining. And it is, I mean, actually he makes a mock, mockery of such hasty revolutionary, you know, uh, actions that in order to change or to prevent, uh, you know, raining, you, you would like sometimes, you know, to change the whole heavens and the laws of nature. Sometimes there are much simpler, you know, ways to do that. Now, when he says that uh, we should ask the how question rather than the who question, he's a political philosopher. And remember, politics in its original Greek sense has got to do with polis, you know. So um, when you have some theories about the polis, you know, in the Greek sense, you are a politician, you are a political philosopher. And uh, take, for example, uh, Leo Strauss, you know, the, uh, the, the person um, um, the, from the University of Chicago. He was anti-revolution either, but I don't think that anybody would say that he was not a, a political philosopher. You know, he was, actually, and he had, you know, some very good, important ideas about political theory, political philosophy, and about Farabi, about Plato, and many others. Uh, in the middle. Uh, oh, uh, I was actually calling this gentleman here with the thank you, with Tony Grayling style hair. Thank you, Dr. Suresh. I'm um, Roger Hardy. I used to be a BBC journalist. I'm now visiting fellow here at LSE. What do you think of the Arab Spring? <laughs> I think it would be very good that they, sh they, 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 they follow Popper, you know, in, <laughs> in what they do and to, you know, to translate Popper into Arabic and to read him and uh, like Khatami actually to recommend, you know, the members of the cabinet to get familiar with Popper and to learn tolerance from him and uh, you know, I like this idea by Popper that we have to extend our toleration to even to our enemies, except to the enemies of tolerance. You know, this is very good. And I think that, uh, but I have written actually uh, an article. And uh, you can find it on my website. It is, uh, I mean, uh, mainly addressed to the Arab Spring and to the, uh, you know, the change in, in the Arab. And I have uh, recommended them to take the judiciary, you know, much more seriously than the election. Although, I mean, you, I mean, everybody understand it and I need not no further explanation here, but uh, mostly in my country, in many other countries, people think that uh, freedom or rather, than, or rather democracy can be reduced to, to election, a free election. Although I am not against a free election, but I think it has been too much inflated. You know, I think the heart of a democracy is uh, the judiciary, you know. And once you have got an independent, very powerful judiciary, you won't have a good democracy. And this is my recommendation to the people in the Arab world that take judiciary much more importantly than the, uh, than the uh, free election itself. So 
this much, uh, but this, of course, I have not learned it from Pope. This comes from elsewhere. <laughs> uh, yeah, that, that gentleman, and then the one in the blue over there, and then David Miller. Um, my name is Iskandar Siddiqui. Can, can you get, wait for the mic? Oh, you got it. Sorry. I didn't Sorry. Hear it. My name is Iskandar Siddiqui. I'm a DPhil student at uh, Oxford University. Um, thank you very much for your uh, talk. Um, my question was that um, given that Popper advocated piecemeal social engineering, what would constitute or perhaps be your recommendation for piecemeal uh, social engineering under the present conditions for the aspiring Democrats and reformists inside Iran, given that uh, on, the th on the 2nd of March, Mr. Khatami voted in an election which uh, many thought was more than questionable and many have been proclaiming the death of the reformist movement as a result. And I, you just actually made a good point regarding the judiciary, but the question is when the judiciary is so utterly politicized, uh, surely there have to be more fundamental political changes for that to actually occur. So that's my question. Well, I think I don't have any comment on what Mr. Khatami did. This is beyond my, you know, talk here. And let us discuss it later. Because that's uh, a very, very specific, you know, minor issue. Uh, Mr. Khatami is, of course, uh, an intelligent, smart man, and he knows what he's doing. He has got his own, you know, uh, friends and foes and so on and so forth. But uh, apart from that, yes, actually, uh, then I recommended that the judiciary should be taken uh, much more seriously by reformers, by revolutionaries. It is exactly because of the Iranian experience I had. You know, as you say, it is utterly defunct, very politicized, very unindependent. And this tells me a lot about the, uh, where actually the democracy goes wrong. When you leave it behind, the judiciary is left, you know, is abandoned like that, like an orphan. But everybody thinking about a free election. Yes, a free election is good, of course, no doubt about it. And people, you know, go to the parliament, they, you know, legislate. But then you need some somebody, you know, in order to protect the law, in order to protect the rights of the people. And if you do not have an independent judiciary, you will have nothing, you know, and the democracy will be dead. Although the, the facade may be there. So this is really my recommendation. This is really one of the main illnesses in uh, democracies uh, in, in, uh, in other countries and in the Arab world, for that matter. <coughs> the gentleman just yeah, to your left, no, a little bit higher. That's, that's the man in the blue side. Thank you very much for your speech. I have a question. You mentioned that Popper was against the revolution, has been always against the revolution. And uh, he thinks that uh, the society should be modified when there is some problem. My question is that if it is not possible to have modification in the society, uh, especially when we confront a dictatorship, what is the solution of Popper if we don't have a revolution, if we cannot have modification? So what would be the solution? Thank you. Well, actually, Popper, of course, I mean, uh, is not a revolutionary. He does not advocate, support, or recommend any revolution. But nevertheless, actually, in the same place in his uh, the open society and uh, its enemies, he actually mentions that uh, it is, I mean, the blame goes to the establishment, 
that leaves no place for the people in order to make peaceful engineering, in order to make peaceful changes. Then, of course, if a revolution happens, then it uh, is inevitable to happen. And the blame goes to the establishment, to the undemocratic establishment that leads people to revolution. His main recommendation is just let us uh, make the rule or the government or the state or whatever so spacious in order to digest all changes without you know, having resort to, to a revolution. But if you make choices so meager, so slim for the people, so in inevitably and eventually they will you know, uh, take refuge in, in a revolution, which is, uh, I mean, as I said, the blame goes to the people who has made such a revolution inevitable and necessary for the, for the people. So what he says is virtually this, <coughs> the revolutions are not planned things in this world. The revolution just happen. You know, they take place, you know, like that. They are not a pre-planned, you know, events or big events in, in, in the society. But for the reformers, of course, the main task is not to invite people for a revolution, but rather to invite the establishment to make room for, for changes. David Miller. I wonder if I can change the subject a little bit. Sure. David Miller, my name. Uh, you've told us about the, the influence of popular on uh, in the humanities and in theology in Iran, but you didn't say anything about scientists. And I'd be interested mm. to know mm. uh, to what effect his uh, ideas influence the scientific, not only the establishment, but, but all scientists. And because scientists one sometimes like, like to think uh, that aren't quite so easily kidded hmm? as, as, um, uh, as others. They, they, ha they have to have some serious respect for uh, things external to themselves. And therefore, uh, a philosophy such as Popper's, it seems to me, suits very well uh, scientific activity. Should be attractive, even if it doesn't, it isn't, of course, revolutionary in any uh, mm. Uh, uh, mm. Uh, political sense. Right. Well, I mean, it is a very good question, actually. Uh, maybe you have in mind, you know, the cooperation between Popper and uh, Sir John Eccles, maybe, or Medava, and so such scientists who, uh, you know, worked with Popper and, you know, supported his ideas and perhaps took the criterion of uh, refutability very seriously in science and so on. I don't think and I don't remember any name, you know, in, in Iran any of, uh, you know, great scientists or, I mean, uh, scientists anyway, generous, who uh, either are very familiar with Popper or they have used his criterion of demarcation between science and non-science uh, in their studies, in their teachings, or in their recommendation to students. So let me say that uh, Popper is much, uh, uh, you know, have a reputation among philosophers, among the students of humanities, rather than the students of science. Because, yes, I must say this, that in the early days of my, you know, uh, uh, work in uh, the uh, uh, Council for Cultural Revolution, I made philosophy of science obligatory for everybody, including scientists, you know. And I personally taught philosophy of science. I do remember for some physicists, 
um, even in the uh, faculty of dentistry and some other places. So they got, you know, familiar and they heard the name of Popper and sometimes, but that was for a short time. And later on, that was no longer the case. Only in humanities, only in the departments of philosophy, I mean, the students had a chance to hear the name of Popper, Lakatoche, Thomas Kuhn, and some other philosophers of science like that, and to read their uh, books. I remember only one physicist in Sharif University who later on established a department of philosophy of science. He, yes, in his philosophy or his in his understanding of science, yes, that was uh, important. I mean, Popper in his understanding of science. And one thing that now your question reminds me of is that uh, science, uh, Popper's, uh, I mean, uh, idea of conjectures and refutations that science all, you know, we learn from our mistakes and, you know, science you know, consists of conjectures and refutations. It helped, you know, uh, according to some, to resolve the conflict between science and religion. Because according to the theologians, religion is the citadel of certainty, and science is, you know, a bunch of conjectural <coughs> theories. So there will be no conflict between the two. Conflict, yes. And so that was, yes, the it. So that much it served, you know, not only the scientists, I mean, not the scientists, but rather the theologians. This much Popper, you know, they should be, uh, you know, grateful to Popper to, to, to teach them that. I'm not sure I'd want my dentist to make too many bold conjectures, but anyway. Um, <laughs> the lady at the back, about four rows up with the hand, uh, with the laptop. I'm Zara Abutalabi, LLM student. I was just wondering, don't you think we need to draw a distinction between the influence of a philosopher and the popularity of a philosopher in a country? What you have so far explained sounds to me that Popper is more a popular philosopher than an influential philosopher. Your account sounded a more of quantitative, um, populistic uh, influence or of, of Karl Popper in Iran society, rather than how Karl Popper philosophy succeeded in reshaping the Iranian intellectual dialogue in academia. I would be grateful if you explain, if you could kindly explain the difference between the influence and popularity. Sorry, popularity of a philosopher. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, remember that before the revolution in Iran, Bertrand Russell virtually and, you know, approximately roughly had the same position. <coughs> because Russell also was, uh, on the one hand, a serious philosopher, a serious mathematician, and on the other hand, you might say a public intellectual. And uh, most of the, uh, I mean, Russell's book on morality, on society, on liberty, on history, and all, especially his book on uh, history of philosophy, were translated into Persian. He was really a public figure in Iran, and much more, you know, uh, reputable, perhaps, or popular, if you like, than, I mean, serious academic philosophers like Hume or Hegel or anybody else. 
exactly the same position, you know, uh, was occupied by Papa after the revolution. Because again, <coughs> Papa himself, being a serious philosopher of science, but on the other hand, he has got something which, uh, you know, makes him, you know, like a public figure, a public intellectual, like his book, especially on uh, the open society and its enemies. There, actually, he is a public intellectual. And there, actually, he exposes and expands his political philosophy, his views on democracy. This made him, you know, popular, if you like. I mean, his philosophy of science was not, you know, is not still, you know, very much known by, by ordinary people. They are not interested, and it is only for the students of philosophy and humanities to, to read him and to study him. But his, you know, public and social ideas, political ideas, yes, it is everywhere. So he is a figure like Bertrand Russell, and unlike many other philosophers here in the West and in the East, that has got two feet, you know, one foot in, in the public, uh, you know, intellectualism, if you like, and the other one in the serious, rigid, you know, academic uh, scholarship. So because of that, actually, Papa became so popular. And uh, both people, I mean, for example, as I said, Mr. Khatami, you know, the president, you know, he read him, he recommended his cabinet to read him. And uh, through this, actually, many other people came to know him. Theologians did read him. Seminarians did read him. I think Papa was much more popular in Iran than in here in England, you know. Although when Popper actually published his book, The Open Society and His Enemies, he became very famous. And uh, maybe you remember that in his book, in, on his autobiography, The Unended Quest, by the way, this book also is translated into Persian. He mentions, you know, uh, you know, his story that after the publication of the book and, uh, you know, being welcomed by everybody, Papa says that uh, he was in the train going to Cambridge and in the same carriage, actually, there were a young boy and a young girl sitting together and uh, talking to each other. And the girl, you know, suddenly asked the boy, who is this Papa who has written the, the book? And Papa was just listening to them. And he says, you know, in his book, such is the fame. You know, I mean, apparently, I mean, he was very jubilant about the event that people they're, you know, talking about him and taking him seriously. This fame actually uh, came to him much more in Iran than here in England, or perhaps in, in, in other countries, I'm not sure. So uh, that was because his role as a public intellectual in his politics, in his, you know, uh, ideas about society, about democracy, about liberty, his role as an anti-Marxist, anti-leftist, and his very serious and severe criticism of, uh, of Marxism. So, uh, but of course, as a philosopher, that is a different story altogether. Gentleman there in the grey jacket. Uh, my name is Amir Takian, and I'm a lecturer of health policy at Brunel University. Uh, you alluded to the inf uh, influence of Popper on some very, very famous scholars like Mutahari, and which is very good. And you also mentioned that President Khatami somehow recommended the book to all the cabinet, which makes us happy as Iranians to see, okay, this is a very famous thing and very influential. But just somehow expanding the previous question with regards to influ influence and popularity, 
what worries me is a lack of contextualization and tailoring the idea for the Iranian uh, audience and the Iranian public, which somehow, uh, um, somehow ended in kind of fading this idea in the practical policy of Iran. So in hindsight, when you think almost after 35 years of these all activities, don't you think that we have not done a lot or enough to somehow contextualize these ideas into Iranian politics in a way which somehow shine the Iranian politics towards more democracy and these kind of ideas rather than having just the books being published and being distributed among the scholars, not having a kind of contextualization of things. Because again, with regards to your ideas and your personal books and your things, what happened was it was a kind of revolutionary things against many Iranian seminaries, which was somehow not very contextual in their thoughts. I mean, what we need to have based on Popper is more evolutionary ideas and more evolutionary, evolutionary uh, reforming of the political uh, landscape in Iran, which needs more contextualization. So I was wondering whether, when you somehow reflect upon the last 35 years, what to think to, uh, about this, this, this subject. Maybe it's a task uh, on the duty of youngsters like you, you know, to do such contextualization. So I mean, not everything should be done by a single person. So <laughs> after all, according to Popper, science or knowledge is a collective activity. So everybody should take part, should cooperate, should participate. And uh, I am you know, really glad that uh, people now um, realize that Popper has got a lot to teach them. And they have got a lot to learn from him, not only in philosophy per se, in philosophy of science, but in some other you know, areas of philosophy, of life, if you like. And uh, this is uh, important. So, um, yes, I know that the mood now is different, you know, in Iran. And uh, the Heideggerians, perhaps, through their channels, perhaps they have got the upper hand. And they have taught, you know, the, the, the establishment that perhaps through Heidegger, they can, you know, have a better, a firmer, foundations for their rule, you know. And Pope, who was a decided anti-fascist, anti-totalitarian, nowadays has got no chance in order to be in favor. But nevertheless, I think this is only on the part of the establishment. On the part of people, the story is very different. And that gives us a very optimistic view of, the, of a brighter future. But don't forget your duty. Okay. <coughs> Alex, uh, and then, sorry, we got it. Well, actually, I have written a book about some, hun uh, some 700 pages. It's, and, uh, it's a very hefty you one. Might price it. <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> I may refer you to that book. I remember, <laughs> I remember that a cleric you know, once came to my place at, in Tehran and asked me about the gist of the matter in my book. I, I said to him that I have written 700 pages in order to expand my ideas. 
and you are asking me you know, to tell you in two or three statements. He said, yes, yes, I know that you have got such a book, but I would like to hear it from your blessed lips. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> now, <laughs> no, my, I said to him, you know, I have written all that with my blessed pen, so please... <laughs> Now, uh, the, the, the option is yours, I mean, to go to my blessed pen or to my blessed uh, lips. But I tell you, I mean, what I have got there is, you know, what I do, you know, this is the trick, uh, my trick in, in the book. You know, I tell you, you know, I, you know, I disclose, I, I, I reveal my secret to you. There, actually, I have made a, diff a separation between two things, religion and understanding of religion, you know. So these two are very different. Understanding of religion is fallible. So this is as much I have been able to do. And I think this must answer your question. It is exactly like nature. Nature is there, whatever it is, you know. But our understanding of nature, our science, is always hypothetical, always fallible. It has nothing to do with nature. It has got to do with us as human beings, with our limited capacity of understanding of you know, discovering the laws. So this is what I said and what I did in my book and many, many articles and other things. And I think now it has become a common knowledge. You know, it has become a common knowledge. And this is actually the gist of the content of the book, as I mentioned, expansion and contraction of religious knowledge. Religious knowledge, not religion. You know, this is important. So our understanding is hypothetical, is fallible, is conjectural, or whatever you say. But this has got nothing to do with religion. Religion is like nature. It has got its own you know, laws, its own contents, but it is somehow inaccessible. What is accessible is our understanding, our collective knowledge, our interpretation, if you like. And that's why this is my motto in my book and in most of my writings, that religion is nothing but the interpretation of religion. Islam is nothing but a series of interpretations of Islam. Christianity, for that matter, is nothing but a series of interpretations of Christianity, and so on and so forth. And through this, actually, are intru introduced the, um, you know, the, uh, the element of historicity, which is, I mean, absent in Popper, of course the element of historicity into interpretation, into religious understanding, and many other things. So this is as much as I can say. We're very close to the end, and lots of people want to ask questions, but this gentleman over there has been waiting for a long time, and that one, and that one, and then that will be it, I'm afraid. You'll have to ask uh, Professor Surush in the reception. Please. Hi, uh, thank you. I, uh, I am uh, Rasmus Roshke. I'm a student here at uh, the LSE. Uh, I was wondering if you can comment on a statement made by the Secretary General of the Council of Europe. And he said that, uh, yeah, this is kind of a general question, but yeah, he said that um, Islam needs uh, a Martin Luther and a Reformation, like the one that separated politics and religion in Europe. So what's your comment on that? Thank you. Well, uh this is part of the agenda of the reform in Islam and the reform in Iran about the religion. Of course, I mean, a lot of discussion, a lot of, uh, you know, different definitions about secularism, separation of church and state, things like that about the, you know, the specificities and peculiarities of Islam as a religion and its differences with, uh, especially with Christianity. So it's a very long story, a very sophisticated story, but nevertheless, Yes, I mean, this is part of uh, what religious reformers have come and have realized 
that uh, part of our uh, problems, you know, resides actually in, in uh, you know, the, uh, the, if you like, church and uh, state being together. Therefore, a kind of political secularism, if not a philosophical secularism, is needed. Philosophical secularism means that uh, you are secular in the sense that uh, you, uh, in order to explain natural phenomena, you, you need not, you know, the introduction of any divine or supernatural power. This is philosophical secularism as I understand it. You need not be a secular, a philosophical secular. But uh, a political secularism, of course, is different. It's just the separation of church and state. I think this is something which is being tried now. And uh, it is not a simple story. Because with Islam, of course, you have got a number of uh, problems here to address and to solve. But nevertheless, the general outlook, I would say that exactly the same. Although, I mean, such a reformation like what you had in Christianity, the Protestantism, that cannot happen in, in, in Islam because there is no official church in Islam, and so that you cannot expect it. But uh, a reform which means a political secularism, I think, is uh, uh, round the corner. <laughs> Hello, and thank you. I'm a philosophy student at Reading University. Uh, just as far as I remember, in one of your books, Ethics of Gods, you advocated and you elaborated a Popperian Hayekian account of liberty. But some years later, you changed your mind into more Rawlsian Kantian account of liberalism. And do you think Popperian liberalism does not work anymore? Well, Popperian liberalism is, is not a very sophisticated one. It is liberalism, you know, par excellence. But in order for Popperian liberalism to become more sophisticated, of course you have to go to either to Hayek, his spontaneous order, or perhaps to Rawls. And that's why, you know, I have, uh, I'm not saying that I am changing my, uh, you know, my outlook uh, in Isaiah Berlin's, uh, you know, terminology. I am more, you know, moving from negative liberty to positive liberty. And in order to have a theory about positive liberty, I think uh, we need Hayek and uh, Rawls and so on. So that is a kind of continuation of what I did, uh, I mean, previously. Final question on the front here, and then I'm apologies to all the other people, but you will be able to chance to talk to Professor Surish in the reception. Ralf Hoppenheimer, uh, I did a graduate degree here 48 years ago. Um, although you've said the judiciary in Iran is not independent and um, the government is far from being democratic, I'm encouraged by the fact that Popper's books are available, that he is popular, and I'd like to ask you, do you think his ideas will ever gain traction in Iran in terms of institutions and democracy? If so, will it happen by revolution or by more Popper's ideas of adjustment? And if it will happen, when? <laughs> well, 
the person who gave the lecture here was not a prophet, and you are not, uh, I mean, expecting me to prophesy about the future of Iran. Uh, what uh, I would like to say is, although Popper's books are not banned, but my books are banned. So, I mean, <laughs> you have to have a full picture, you know. So, I mean, Popper is not an immediate threat, or is not considered to be an immediate threat to the, to the rule and the rulers. But this poor gentleman perhaps is considered to be. And therefore, I mean, so in order to have the full picture, uh, because I uh, somehow I would say that uh, I naturalized or uh, what is it, tamed the ideas of Popper or domesticated it and uh, tried to make it you know, to the taste of the people in, in Iran. And in order to contextualize it, as the gentleman mentioned, to make it more intelligible to the Iranian public. And because of that, of course, I mean, uh, some people, I mean, necessarily do not, do not like it. But as far as Popper is uh, concerned, I mean, not only Popper, I mean, now after the revolution, Marx, you can find him everywhere. Before the revolution, Marx was banned, virtually. No book by him or on him was allowed to be published. You know, you had to find them, you know, in a clandestine way, you know, surreptitiously, if you like. But now, you know, after the revolution, no, you do not have such a thing. You know, Marx is everywhere. The capital of Marx, you know, books on Marx, against Marx and everything. And I tell you that the Islamic establishment in Iran has got no problem with Marxism. It has got problem with liberalism. Liberalism now is the biggest foe against establishment rather than Marxism. And I have got a, you know, a big you know, talk about this, why liberalism has become you know, uh, such a big foe. Uh, whereas for some time against the Shah's regime, Marxism uh, had the same place. Anyway, um, I, what I'm saying is this, that Popper will never be banned in Iran and has not, has never been banned. So he's being read and, uh, you know, he's, you know, just having, you know, a gradual impact on the educated, especially in Iran. But uh, when the people who, you know, explain and advocate, you know, and try to expand his ideas, they feel some freedom, then I would say that it is a, a good sign for a healthy, you know, change in the uh, Iranian public. Yes. So, um, Papa introduced the criterion of refutability as a criterion of demarcation between science and non-science. <coughs> no, I think uh, Papa himself has become a criterion for demarcation between liberty and non-liberty in Iran and maybe in some other places. Okay, well, many apologies to uh, several people who are trying to uh, catch my eye. They did catch my eye, but we, did, we don't have time for further questions, I'm afraid. But we will, as everybody's invited to the reception, which will take place just outside this, uh, the, 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 the top doors there. Uh, and uh, I'm sure that Professor Suresh will be happy to answer further questions there in an informal way. But let's thank him very much for really stimulating.